Hello and welcome back to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg, and happy Pride Month. On this week's show, The Indie went out to the San Inez Valley and Santa Maria Valley to talk with the LGBTQ community about the importance of representation and some of the obstacles community groups faced for this year's Pride celebration. Then, the Indy learned more about the historic preservation site, El Presidio, home to some of the early Asian American settlements in the Central Coast. But up first, at the core of Santa Barbara is its surf culture, and whether you surf or not, the community's love for the sport on the Central Coast is so evident. So, the Santa Barbara Surf Film Festival is taking over the Lobero Theater this weekend to celebrate surf history, surf culture, and how Santa Barbara plays a fundamental role in not only energizing surfing traditions, but also bringing innovation to the sport all along the world's coast. The Santa Barbara Surf Film Festival is going down this weekend, June 9th and 10th at the Lobero. And on the lineup, there are several short film programs and feature films to view on the big screen. This week on the Indie, I got a peek at what attendees can expect at this third annual film festival. Hi, my name is Heidi Vandenover, and I'm one of the producers of the Santa Barbara Surf Film Festival. My partner has been a surfer all his life, and, you know, I've been a surfer since I was 15. Um, not as avid as he is. He surfs every single day. Doesn't matter the size of the waves. He's out there. Um, and he had always wanted to produce a surf film festival. And so I have a marketing background and do, you know, a little bit of everything on this festival. Um, so it's been really fun just to take stuff from my background. I worked for a photographer for years and did a little bit of design work. And then, you know, just have used all those things um, to be able to help out with the festival. It's so funny that you mentioned that your partner goes out despite the size of the waves. And I know there's one film being shown this year, Groundswell, The Other Side of Fear. And this film really caught my attention. It's a glance into the 2021-2022 big wave season and how mentality of surfers is so important to the sport, facing your fears in the water. And there's this quote, something along the lines of, the logical thing to do is stay on land, but they paddle out anyways, talking about how surfers are so fearless in the face of big waves. So this is something I'm excited for, but I wanted to get your opinion What can we expect this weekend? What are you most excited for? And what kinds of films are going to be showcased? Oh my gosh, I'm excited for the whole thing. Um, Friday night, I think I'm really excited for that because that's coming up the soonest. Our short films program is really awesome. We have a lot of local filmmakers that are featured and Josh Palmer's new film, The Rebirth of the Kill, that's going to be awesome too. He's a really good friend of ours. And beyond those, just mentioned an original film called Mind Surfing by 805 Beer is a glimpse into becoming a professional surfer in Santa Barbara. And a remastered version of Bill Delaney's 1977 surf movie, Free Ride, is playing in the Lobero, among many, many others. 
But beneath all of this, the festival has partnered with a few nonprofits with the mission to protect and preserve our coastline. These partners, Heal the Ocean, Surfrider Santa Barbara, and the Surf Happens Foundation, are dedicated to environmental stewardship. And the festival's values are most definitely aligned. So our goal is to create this comprehensive um, celebration of diverse storytelling is like the purpose of our festival. And then, you know, we want to be able to conserve, you know, and protect our environment. And this is why we brought in these three nonprofits. Heal the Ocean is our main nonprofit this year. They've done like such a great job just like expanding their community outreach. Chris Keats with Surf Happens Foundation. He's really been able to, you know, just get the kids that are underprivileged, able to get out there surfing. And then Surf Rider does a great job of really making sure that we're on top of it and using materials that just won't disrupt the environment. All of them kind of like work together too in such a great way. They have that ultimate goal, making sure the community is able to be on the same page and really be able to like enjoy our oceans and uh, make sure they're clean for us to enjoy for years to come. Heidi grew up in Santa Barbara since she was eight years old and said the first waves she ever caught were at Mondo's and Miramar. Now, after many years of longboarding, she speaks to the surf culture here and how the festival fits right in. We've used a lot of local filmmakers with roots that are like deep into the Santa Barbara surf culture. Um, So that's been something we've done each year. You know, we've just done, I feel like a good job of like mixing kind of more um, experimental films too. We do have a few environmental films as well. Black Like Plastic, we're showing on Saturday morning. And so that's like a good one just to kind of like raise awareness. So we have a super chill vibe with the festival. We're still really grassroots. Um, Unlike the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, that's, you know, I feel like very bougie and um, you attract a lot of like out of town, like very high end celebrities. We have like such like a laid back vibe, like Santa Barbara, you know, it's like you're able to cruise around um, in your shorts and flip-flops you know anywhere you go I thought kind of just like translates into our festival too people will be cruising into the festival probably barefoot if they're able to you know just like having gotten out of the water and being able to just like see some of their favorite films I love that shoes are optional for the festival that's great thank you so much Heidi for coming on the show and best of luck for this weekend. And I know it's a very exciting event for all of Santa Barbara, but especially our surf community. Thank you. Tickets for SBSFF showings at the Lobero Theater and a community block party can be found online at santabarbrasurffilmfestival.com. Next up, Pride is celebrated annually in the month of June to commemorate the civil rights struggles and accomplishments of LGBTQ individuals with the Stonewall Uprising in New York City as the catalyst for Pride. The indie reporter Daniel Husias traveled to Solving to speak with Matthew and Kiel Cavalli, co-founders of the Rainbow House, Inc., and then with Suzette Lopez, president of the House of Pride and Equality based in Santa Maria, about the importance of LGBTQ representation. 
June marks lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer pride month, a celebration honoring the 1969 Stonewall Uprising in Manhattan, regarded as a tipping point for the gay liberation movement in the United States. Today, LGBTQ Pride Month celebrations attract millions of participants from around the world, recognizing the impact that LGBTQ people have on history locally, nationally, and internationally. Here in Santa Barbara, major Pride festivities don't take place until August, but in the valleys of the Central Coast, Pride events are underway and not without obstacle. Before we take an audio excursion to the Santa Maria Valley, let's venture to the Danish capital of America nestled in the Santa Inez Valley, the city of Solving. This week, I sat down with Matthew and Kyle Cavalli, Solving residents and business owners and the co-founder of the Rainbow House Incorporated, a nonprofit aiming to establish a refuge for the queer community standing as a beacon of acceptance and peace. Throughout our time together, we discussed the significance of LGBTQ representation in the Santa Inez Valley, eight banners at a time. Here is the interview. My name is Matthew Cavalli. I'm the executive director of the Rainbow House Inc. and also part owner of Wonder Child. And my name is Kyle Cavalli. I go by the pronouns he, him, they. I am the president of the Rainbow House Inc. and part owner of Wonder Child in Solvang, California. First and foremost, happy Pride Month. Are you excited? Yes. We are totally excited. Nice. Yes. This morning, we raised our pride flag. We have a huge flagpole out in the front yard, and mm -hmm. it was amazing. All four of our kids were out there. We raised it, put it up. So it was pretty cool. I want to talk a little bit more about pride flags, pride banners as we you know, move on into the interview. However, let's start with the basics here. Let's talk about Rainbow House. For those who are unaware, could you describe the mission and purpose of Rainbow House Inc.? Our mission is to be the first permanent resource center within the San Ynez Valley to offer counseling, testing, resources for businesses, all for the LGBTQIA plus community and mm. allies. Let's talk about the origin points of Rainbow House. I'm sure mm. that there was a reason, maybe a noticeable absence in the valley that inspired both of you to champion this cause. Yeah, absolutely. I was born and raised in the Valley and came up in a time when there was nothing for the queer community. There wasn't even recognition, really. Mm -hmm. We definitely were conditioned to ignore that part of ourselves and mm -hmm. to not express it in any beautiful, fluffy, magical way that we can a little bit now. So I wanted to be able to create the center where kids who are like us who are just looking for a safe place can come mm. and find the resources that they need right away that they might not be able to within their household right now. And for adults, they might not even know where to start. Mm -hmm. So we want a physical space that anyone can find refuge in and yeah. then find exactly what they need. To piggyback off of that, yeah, ultimately a safe space for, you know, just a beacon of hope, of light. Right. For me, one of the big founding movements for that was, of course, everything that Kyle said, but being a dad and having four children, you know, it's almost like an everyday coming out process to mm -hmm. them whenever we're around new families, new schools, yeah. anything like that. So I wanted to give them the chance to 
see that families come in all different shapes of forms and they're built in all different different ways. So I really wanted to create a pathway where they can see prideful, successful, meaningful, community-oriented leadership and, and involvement. I'm curious to know the experience of getting the Rainbow House off the ground that first year or two. How were you received in regards to the overall community? You know, it all started, we, we started our business, Wonder Child, back in 2017, mm-hmm. and we were the first store in solving that was all about inclusion and diversity. We're a children's toy store and bookstore. So we sell books that talk about all walks of life, mm-hmm. dolls with all different skin color, sizes, glasses, wheelchairs. And for us, that that's just who we are. And that's what yeah. we sell and do. But for the community, it was a really huge wow, like you guys are really different or you guys are really creating a standard or or creating awareness. So that that was also a starting point where we were like, wow, you know, this this is this is a good thing. Yeah. How can we really, really, truly create create yeah. a difference? Yeah, I I was thinking the same thing, like the mm. the beginning, like really when we started the momentum of what the Rainbow House is right now was very accepted and i think it was because we kept it within almost our circle and protected it quite a bit because we knew how unique and special this project is going to be yeah so i think maybe not even realizing what we were doing we definitely kept it in almost like a little cocoon and as what matt alluded to it wasn't until we really started asking for things that went outside of that community, did we really start to see that pushback of, whoa, yeah. you guys are really coming against what is comfortable for the, the Sandiness Valley, and we're not okay with it. One of the more recent obstacles faced by the Rainbow House was a challenge to place a series of rainbow banners in downtown solving in honor of Pride Month, culminating in a series of contentious city council meetings. In late April, the Solving City Council approved a proposal to fly eight rainbow banners to celebrate Pride Month, reversing a previous vote that sparked public outcry and a letter penned by the Lord Mayor of Copenhagen in Denmark, encouraging the City Council to give their full support by voting in favor of the banners. The approval represented a compromise between the Rainbow House and the Council. The eight downtown banners will fly for two weeks in June, but not for the entirety of Pride Month. The Cavallis explained further. We... Filled it out, created the design, submitted it, showed up to the meeting. We mm-hmm. we brought our children with us. We thought it was going to be exciting. They can see how the city governs and just how amazing this is going to be. And, yeah. and we showed up thinking that we just go up, give our app, talk about it. They see pictures and then they vote yes or no. But unbeknownst to us, there was a call of action to have people show up that were in opposition of that. And we didn't know. And we showed up and the city boardroom was filled. And it literally felt like we were the only two people sitting in the middle of this room, listening to the community just really go against us. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, we had to take our children out of there and it was bad. And that, that, I mean, that was the first time that it was, it was scary. We've always been proud and true in our conviction of, of who we were. And we've always spoken to our children about different 
ways of view, different walks of life and, and beliefs. So they understood the opposition, but they never heard it or saw it to that degree. And, you know, as a dad, I mean, that's, that's pretty sad. Yeah, it was a very intense, I think we walked in there. Well, I personally walked in there very naive to what could happen. I thought that it would be a quick, easy, yes, of course we could put pride banners up. We had our first pride in solving last year and it was a beautiful parade and festival and drag show. And we really celebrated what being queer was on that weekend. And it was everything but that. And it it got to the point where the energy in the room was so toxic that, as Matt said, we had to take our kids out of there. And and I think as we came to the end of meeting after meeting after meeting, I think it was three or four meetings that we had to go to to kind of endure the opposition, we definitely saw the counteraction to that and saw the support of how people in this community, whether they are queer or allies, really want to see some change. And at the end of it, there was definitely a balance between people who opposed it and people who were for it. And we definitely had to compromise through the entire yeah, thing absolutely. to get eight banners approved for 10 days kind of thing. So even though we wound up in a spot where we were successful, if you will, that compromise I still feel, the battle. yeah, Go that ahead. it is kind of almost setting a precedence of what the community who opposes us would expect in the future. And I think that going forward with projects and whatnot, compromise isn't going to be an option. Yeah, I think it would be very important for us and any endeavor that we really choose to pursue next would be to really stick to I, I want to talk about a couple of points that were brought up at the city council meeting where the vote took place. I was present virtually, so I was able to sit through everything and, and hear a myriad of different opinions. Two of the things that I want to pick your brains about are specifically this understanding from opposition that any sort of movement towards LGBTQ representation is inherently political. Yeah, I think that that is such a big hot topic that mm. is a narrative that is really pushed from certain people and or parties and or beliefs. But our stance is it's not political. I mean, how how is being a gay human being, you know, that is born this way? How 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 are you going to tell me that that is political? That's the equivalent of us speaking to cis males or cis females and saying, hi, you're political because you're straight and you love the opposite sex. I mean, it's just bonkers. However, I do understand, you know, the, the first original pride, you know, started from a riot and there are a lot of politics involved with, with all of that. But ultimate, ultimately, to me, you know, being a gay individual is, is not a political movement or or stance it's just it's just being a human yeah i think i really tried to drive home in that last meeting that me being a homosexual is not political and me taking a stance to love who i want to love and be out and proud should not play into politics at all it's not a woke agenda that i'm trying to push on anyone 
It is just who I am through and through and the core of my being. So for that to kind of be thrown in our face again and again is disheartening because it's it's tough to kind of change that narrative for people, except for the involvement of like one-on-one interaction or group interaction or that sort of stuff. I think that is really important to us as well is really getting the time that we can connect with people so that they realize that I'm just a person and not a political being. On the flip side of this, the support that you received, community members pouring in from throughout the valley, you know, how were you impacted by that support? Yeah, I think that is the beauty out of all of this. Being a gay individual, when you go up against adversity, you, you often feel like that child in school where you are singled out and always on the defense or always feeling like somebody is coming out to get you or, or, or look at you. So at first, when we started, that's exactly how we felt. We were these two gay men up against, you know, the entire city. But throughout this whole process, just seeing all of this love and support that came through, I mean, it's, I mean, it just, it makes your heart feel so good. Yeah. I think for me, the perspective is a little bit different because for whether the person is in opposition or support, those are people that I've rubbed shoulders with my entire life. I've worked with them. I've worked for them. I have gone to school with them. I've gone, I've taken my kids to school where their kids go as well. So I think in the beginning, that was so shocking to see people who know me personally and I know personally really come out and be so vicious. I think, again, like Matt said, to see all of these amazing individuals who stepped out of their comfort zones and some of them, some of their circumstances to really come out and voice their opinion and support was absolutely incredible. There are people who had to drive in from Lompoc or the, across the other side of the valley because the Zoom links weren't working and they wanted mm. to make sure that their voice was heard. I think that is creates so much hope for the change that we really want to see and the availability of these resources that it was just so amazing to really walk away with that victory. I think that is actually a bigger victory than even getting the banners approved. What we want to see in the outcome. This this year around has been a, a huge, like, very scary at first and then yeah. wow we're on the other side of the rainbow yeah goodness with the other side of the rainbow including an educational workshop on june 13th and a community bike ride on june 10th the rainbow house incorporated looks forward to an entire slate of pride celebrations celebrations continue from one valley to the next in the santa maria valley where i sat down with dj suzette lopez co-founder of Mirabe entertainment group and president of the House of Pride and Equality in Santa Maria. Here is the interview. My name is Suzette Lopez, also known as DJ Suze, and I am a co-owner of Mirame Entertainment and president of House of Pride and Equality in Santa Maria. My partner and I decided to start an entertainment company. We've been in the entertainment business for a while, Mm -hmm. just with my DJ career and getting involved with different events in the community. So our main 
goal is to provide Latinx and culturally inclusive events that are also catered to the queer community. House of Pride and Equality, we were founded back in 2016 after the tragedy that happened at Pulse Nightclub in mm -hmm. Orlando. They hosted a vigil and people responded very well in the community mm -hmm. and they saw that there was a need for more queer representation. So yeah. what House of Pride and Equality is doing for Santa Maria is they are providing visibility for the queer community. We've sat down with each other before. You've grown up in Santa Maria, correct? Yes, born and raised. This leads me to my next question. Could you tell me about your experiences growing up queer on the Central Coast in the Valley? Well, I have a very unique story. I didn't mm -hmm. come out until I was in my mid-20s. Okay. It, but I can tell you that I grew up in a very Mexican religious home. Okay. And that is the the case for many of our queer community members in Santa Maria. We have a big yeah. religious community. So for me, it was very difficult being able to come out to my parents. And mm -hmm. even though now we're in a great place, it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And there weren't, there wasn't like represent, representation. There yeah. weren't groups that were there to, to, to be mentors, you know? Mm -hmm. And so hope was that for me in my mid twenties and to be able to be a part of that and help others get through their process mm -hmm. much easier. It's, it's very rewarding. Would you say that you are almost paying it forward in a sense? Definitely. Some of the founding members for House of Pride were there for me when I was going through my process. And this yeah. was back in, you know, 2015, 2016. So the fact that we're able to do that for others and just see how how they keep coming back and and making our 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 events even better. Yeah. It's just very nice to witness. So as far as Pride in Santa Maria is concerned, I want to discuss the significance of Pride specifically in the midst of a very anti-LGBTQ climate that's taking place across the country. Why is it important, especially here on the Central Coast, outside of these larger cities like Los Angeles or San Francisco, right? Why is it important for LGBTQ presence to be felt? I mean, it's important because if we don't show up, who will? Mm. So we need to be, we need to continue to be creating visibility yeah. and showing up for our queer community. It seems like we take one step forward and like four steps back. Yeah. And so the more we, we do events, the more visibility we create, mm -hmm. you know, the closer we will be to normalizing our existence. The act of showing up, although necessary for many, is not without its danger. In a heated climate of anti-LGBTQ sentiment, exemplified by a slate of anti-LGBTQ legislation in the form of drag bans and anti-trans laws, visibility can sometimes feel like a target. Matthew Cavalli explains. With all of this that's going on, we've had people show up to our home and we've yeah. seen people out there taking pictures of our home, video recording of our home. We've had numerous anonymous emails come to us just full of hate. We even received our first death threat 
And it's, it is scary. I mean, again, we are two pretty strong individuals, but it's not just us anymore. We're not just alone. We, we have a family, we have kids. I was telling Kyle, you know, last year going through pride and being on that float last year, I was the president of SYV pride, the organization that actually puts on the pride event. That was the first time ever in my life where I felt seen being on that pride floats, waving and just seeing all these people, like it truly was this blanket of fear, of anxiety that was just lifted because I was like, holy crap, look at all of these people. They are here for a gay pride parade. And here I am a gay man. So it was amazing. But I was telling him this year that it is a little scary because now And this is awful to say, but now I told him, I go, I almost feel like we are this exposed moving target. I think the fact that we have to bring in security, like not even security that it might already be assigned to the location that we are going to, that they provide, but actually bringing in more security that we hire independently and then letting the chief of police know what we're doing so that he can be aware and if he feels appropriate send deputies out those are all things that i would have never thought in our small community but now we're in necessity and that is yes it does create a lot of fear and almost reservation i think it also creates the reality of how important it is to celebrate when you have the opportunity. So these events that we're putting on as the Rainbow House Inc. or the events that SYV Pride are putting on or the events that independent businesses are putting on, uh, those are things that we have to show up for. Because at any given one, there might be someone who has never seen a same-sex couple successfully raising a family having a happy marriage, having a successful business and creating a space within this nonprofit for safety and acceptance. And if we're able to share that experience with them and say, hey, we're just people, you know, then that could really create the change. And I think celebration is so important. We don't have the opportunity to celebrate enough throughout the year. So for us, going to the majority of these events will be a priority. But then also, as we come out of June, thinking about how we can continue that momentum so we can celebrate each other and gather the community, not just in June, but maybe every month. Could we carve out the space where we can celebrate the queer community every month? Yes, we can. So, (laughs) Thank you to Kyle Cavalli, Matthew Cavalli, and Suzette Lopez for sharing their time and experiences. For more information on upcoming Pride events in the Santa Ynez Valley and information on the Rainbow House Incorporated, visit therainbowhouseinc.com. For more information on upcoming Pride events and resources in the Santa Maria Valley, such as Santa Maria Pride on June 10th, visit houseofprideandequality.org. With the Santa Barbara Independence Indie Pod, I'm Daniel Macias. Take care. And take pride, Santa Barbara. Thank you, Keel, Matthew, and Suzette for coming on the Indie Pod today and discussing the importance of not only visibility during pride, but also celebrating the queer community always.
And up next, last month, the month of May, was Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. The indie reporter Rebecca Fairweather sat down with Kevin McGarry with the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation to talk about the rich history of Asian American settlements at El Presidio and again, how celebrations and community support is year-long. As May comes to a close, the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage throughout the year. El Presidio is operated and maintained by the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation along with California State Parks. Their mission is to preserve and rebuild historic sites in Santa Barbara County. The preservation site is a reconstruction and restoration of the last four military outputs built by the Spanish during their colonization of the Alta Coast during the mid-1700s. This re-establishment in 1960 marked the erasure of Santa Barbara's Chinatown and Japantown. The 100 block of East Canan Perdido and 800 Anacapa Street was home to the cultural and religious center of Asian Americans throughout the 1890s up until 1960. Throughout the early 1900s, many immigrant families settled in the Santa Barbara coast, establishing work and building a new life. In 1925, things shifted as Santa Barbara experienced a historic 6.3 earthquake, rocking officials to begin gentrification efforts replacing previous architecture with Spanish colonial architecture. This meant the end of many of these first-generation businesses. By the 1940s, some community members were detained and placed in Tuna Canyon Detention Center in the San Fernando Valley. This facility held more than 2,000 people during the U.S. internment of Japanese Americans. By the 1950s, the community had dwindled, ultimately resulting in the demolition of previously sacred community centers. Hi, yeah, my name is Kevin McGarry. Uh, I'm the Associate Director for Public Engagement at the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation, which is a nonprofit organization kind of in the heart of downtown's historic area of Santa Barbara. Spanish World Presidio, El Presidio de Santa Barbara, was established um, in 1782, and it was one. It was actually the last of four presidios or Spanish fortresses um, along Alta California, which means Upper California, and it was kind of a, the last colonial effort of of Spain in in the late 1700s. And the presidios was a, like one part of a three prong effort that the Spanish were doing. Basically, uh, there were the pueblos, the presidios, and the missions, and the presidios were meant to protect the Pueblos and the missions. So it was an imperial effort to claim land for the crown in Spain. Of course, there were about 20,000 people living here, mm -hmm. uh, what we now consider the Central Coast and the greater Santa Barbara County, the, the Chumash people, all the way as north as San Luis Obispo, all the way down to present-day Malibu. It wasn't a homogeneous group. There were lots of different groups of Chumash, and they spoke different dialects, um, and they had a robust system of trade. And then the Spanish came in the late 1700s and uh, established the 21 missions and the four presidios and the Pueblos. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of how the Presidio was founded and was only only operated by the Spanish for just under 40 years. So we're not talking about a very long time that Spanish controlled Santa Barbara. Yeah, the surrounding area, the Presidio, used to be a hub for Japanese Americans and Asian Americans back in the 1920s. Can you walk us through a little bit of what um, the Spanish settlement looked like in the early 1900s as the Japanese began immigrating to the California coast? By 1821, Spanish lost control because of Mexican independence. So the soldados and their families that inhabited the Presidio, uh, those that didn't 
want to pledge allegiance to the government of Mexico were actually forced away from the Presidio. So a lot of them were um, moved to different ranchos in the area. A lot of the Presidio sold soldado families or soldier families. So by the time that the Chinese started arriving in the Santa Barbara area in the 1860s, most of the Presidio was uninhabited. And there was already efforts by the mid-1800s into the later 1800s to kind of Americanize Santa Barbara. And, and so one of those efforts was putting the street grid, which we now know of um, in Santa, downtown Santa Barbara, the streets, the one-way streets, and, the, and people were uprooted in that effort too. The Chinese actually came down, most of them came down from Northern California in the late 1800s to find work here. And so they were the first uh, Asian American immigrants to Santa Barbara, and they helped build some of the roads. And they were abalone fishermen, they were you know uh, domestic service workers, all kinds of things. So they um, they actually settled just a block west of where the Presidio is today, kind of across from the Libero, closer to State Street. That was considered the first Chinatown. So most of the Chinese lived there mm-hmm. until the earthquake of 1925. Yeah. So the Japanese came around the turn of the century, so around 1900. And they also came in, it was mostly uh, male um, workers coming from Japan looking for work as well. Some with the intent of going back, sending financial support back to their families in Japan. And that was the same, a lot, a lot of times was the same case for the Chinese. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in the early 1900s, the Chinese and the Japanese were actually right across the street from each other. So the Niamachi, the Japanese, was on the block where the where the Presidio is reconstructed today, so mm-hmm. where you see on Canyon Perdido. And so they interacted. They were basically a, an immigrant neighborhood and used each other's shops and, and laundry and all that kind of stuff. So it was it's interesting because of the conflicts that were going on between Japan and China way mm-hmm. over on the other side of the world at the same time. But here, you know, they had this dual identity of being... American citizens, but also being from these these countries where they came from. So yeah. I think that's really interesting to talk about when we give tours and all that stuff. We really um, try to bring out some of the family stories, but mm-hmm. also the neighborhood feel that there must have been back then. So you bring up some great historical points. I mean, hearing of the immigration stories of Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans kind of settling their home in Santa Barbara is an awe-inspiring story, but they, like you said, helped build a lot of what Santa Barbara is today in many ways. So how is the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation working on preserving and documenting the Asian American and Pacific Islander stories associated with the space? That's a great question. We're doing lots of things to kind of bring to the surface this history that a lot of people don't know about Santa Barbara, Mm -hmm. um, the Asian American history. About 15 years ago, a group formed as one of our cultural affinity group or committees as a part of this trust um, called the Asian American History Committee. It's now called the Asian American affinity group mm-hmm. and it was a group of Asian local Asian American people that wanted to teach about and also share their cultural heritage and history and the history of Asian American experiences in Santa Barbara. So that kind of was started because the building that is part of the State Historic Park now is uh, Jimmy's Oriental Gardens. It's the last kind of visual remnant of Santa Barbara's second Chinatown. The Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation purchased that from the Chung family that operated it since 1947. They closed their doors in 2006 and then from 2007 to 2005 14, the trust worked to have the state purchase that building, um, which is now the Pickle Room at Three Pickles, <laughs> right here in Canon Perdido Street, um, a local bar. <laughs> and so it's actually a part of the state park and it helps us interpret the Chinese history. And then we also have an exhibit in the Presidio Visitor Center that's all about the Japantown and the Japanese neighborhood. So we have these two exhibits. And then we also have two programs 
every year. In October, we do a big Asian American neighborhood festival. And in July, coming up, we do an Asian American film series. And they're, they're free public programs. Donations always welcome, but they're basically meant to share the cultures and history of the Asian American experience, not just in Santa Barbara, but in California and the West Coast. Um, but we do love local stories and, and films and stuff. So I, I love that you bring up the film festival in July, too. I think that that is something that listeners would be extremely interested in learning more about if you could dive a little bit further into that. Yeah, so this is actually um, our 14th annual film series and mm -hmm. um, we have a, a theater that's a part of the State Historic Park. It's actually one of the most recent uh, city landmark buildings. This mm -hmm. building that we're in right now, it's called the Alakama Theater. Alakama um, Theater was part of the Santa Barbara School of the Arts, which is a 1930s, 40s history story that's also adjacent to the story of the Presidio because it it's within the, the original Crown Ring. But it was one of the first sites of Santa Barbara City College, mm. and it was an art school. So there's this theater that we get to use to do lectures and film screenings and all kinds of stuff. And um, our film series is one of our most popular programs every year. And we're showing four films each Friday in July. This year, we're showing Alternative Facts, The Lies of Executive Order 9066. That's uh, FDR's executive order that, of course, established Japanese internment camps where most of the Japanese in Santa Barbara, including the Niamachi neighborhood, were sent to during World War II. And then there was also showing a film called Liquor Store Dreams and a film called The Donut King. And then our final film is called Chinatown Rising. And you'll notice all, a lot of these films have a history element to them. So we don't just show documentaries. We'll show narrative films too, especially mm -hmm. if they're kind of really focused around the experience of Asian Americans in living, you know, the American dream, so to speak, or first, second, or third generation kind of experiences. These films are all selected by our Asian American Affinity Group members. So that's mm -hmm. one of their big annual endeavors is to watch these films together and choose ones that they think are worth sharing with. This is a nice kind of focused film series that we get to offer. And um, yeah, it's one of it's I'd say it's our members, the members of our organization. It's one of their favorite things to attend. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Tying back into the month of May as it is Asian American Pacific Islander Month, what did the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation do to celebrate? And how have you continued to show your support for the Asian American community? So yeah, this is our 14th annual film series and our 14th annual neighborhood festival coming up. And it's just amazing to me like that both these programs have grown and remained popular and in some ways gotten even more um, more inclusive and more equitable in terms of the performers invited or the types of films. And I think I think there's just a big future for, for programming like this and for the interest that people do have already in, in learning about this kind of lesser told history of, of Santa Barbara. So we talked to second generation small business owners from the Asian American community community whose parents moved here and, and but they were born here mm -hmm. and we talked about some of the challenges they faced um, and, and some of the generational differences they have with yeah. their parents which I think is something that people don't talk about but mm -hmm. it's a huge part of having a family that's from another place and I think those conversations those dialogues will continue to happen here because we've gotten such great feedback and people enjoy I think kind of seeing different perspectives about what it's what it is to be living in Santa Barbara mm -hmm. as a young person with parents that were immigrants or or as you know an older generation who worked hard to get here and bring their family here so those stories I think are, are they're the most powerful because mm -hmm. there's something relatable to even someone like me who's Irish American two mm -hmm. three generations back but it makes you want to look back at your own family story yeah, yeah. Just thinking and hearing about second generation and third generation stories. We oftentimes can feel like we're left out of the narrative or left out of the connection to back home, but we're still connected. You know, there's stories in Santa Barbara that bring us to those places again. 
With summer approaching, you can cool down with the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation for their 14th annual Asian American Film Series, starting July 7th. Their four-week series will be held every Friday for free. Thank you for joining us here today on The Indie. I'm Rebecca Fairweather. And for more information about the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation, visit sbthp.org and check out their upcoming film series this summer in the El Presidio State Historic Park. That's all for this week, and thank you so much for tuning in to The Indie. And to stay up to date with the team, be sure to follow us at The Indie Pod on Instagram. From the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent, I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg. And as always, we'll see you next week.